0: This week, American Tire Distributors and mattress firm file for Chapter Eleven in Delaware. Monotronics fails to get requisite consents for second lien exchange. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Riorg. Hello, and welcome to the Riorg Research Weekly podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Riorg's offices in New York City.
1: And I'm Stephen Opper. This week, Director of Research Mark Fisher sits down with our fellow podcast host and senior energy reporter Jim Holloway to discuss the latest from the Permian Basin, including prospects for future production and spending. It's Sunday, October 7th. On Thursday, American Tire Distributors, the North Carolina-based tire wholesaler, filed for Chapter 11 in Delaware. The company entered with a restructuring support agreement with sponsors and consenting senior subordinated note holders. The RSA closely follows the agreement with bondholders disclosed last month. Out of the agreement, unsecured note holders would get 95% of reorganized ATD equity, and existing equity holders, including company sponsors Aries and TPG, would receive the other 5%. Prior to the first-day hearing, the company had not reached agreement with term lenders. However, according to ATD's counsel, an agreement was reached Thursday night, and at the first-day hearing on Friday, Chad Husnick of Kirkland & Alice, counsel of the Debtors, announced that the company reached an agreement with the ABL lenders, with the term lenders, and with the holders of more than 75% of the unsecured bonds. Following the hearing, the debtors announced terms of the deal, including a three-year extension to the term loan. The lenders would provide half of the $250 million in new dip financing and would be able to participate in the exit financing. In his first day declaration filed prior to the hearing, CFO William Williams said that the debtors had negotiated with an ad hoc term loan lender group leading up to the petition date, but that the group had sought, quote, excessive value in exchange for their support in restructuring. ATD had said that absent an agreement with those lenders, it might have sought to reinstate the pre-petition term loan, keeping the existing terms. To guide through bankruptcy, the debtors seek a $1.2 billion dip facility, which includes a full roll-up of the U.S. pre-petition ABL as well as $250 million in new money financing. The new money comes in the form of a dip first in last out, which would be provided by consenting pre-petition note At the first day hearing, Judge Kevin Carey approved the interim dip, which provides for a roll up of the entire $639 million in outstanding principal amount of the pre-petition ABL and makes $190 million of the dip first in last out loan available.
0: Mattress Firm Inc. and a series of affiliates filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy relief Friday morning with a prepackaged plan of reorganization pursuant to which all creditor classes are unimpaired. In a right sizing effort, the debtors say that they intend to exit up to 700 of their retail stores during the cases, with a quote, initial group of 200 stores expected to be closed within a few days. According to the first-day declaration of CFO Hendré Ackerman, the debtors would have run out of cash before the end of October, absent the bankruptcy filing. The plan contemplates that following the restructuring, Steinhoff Europe AG or SCAG, would own a 50.1% equity interest in mattress firm's non-debtor holding company Stripes U.S. Holdings Inc., or Sushi, and the exit term lenders would receive a 49.9% equity interest in Sushi. Debtors have secured commitments for DIP facilities consisting of a $150 million revolver and $100 million term loan facility, as well as commitments for $525 million in exit financing, which includes $400 million of exit term loan financing to quote, fund all of the payments that are contemplated under the plan, provide them with sufficient liquidity going forward, and repay the DIP credit facilities, and an asset based revolving facility up to $125 million, which is expected to be initially undrawn. The exit term loan would be provided by certain creditors of SEAG. The plan contemplates that all pre-petition secured lenders would be paid in full, including through a roll-up of the pre-petition ABL facility and that general unsecured creditors, excluding holders of claims arising under the Intragroup Loan Agreement with SEAG and its parent Steinhoff Mobile Holding Alpha GmbH, or Mobile, would be paid in full in cash. The debtor's first-day papers list Simmons Manufacturing as their largest unsecured creditor, with a $64.7 million trade payable. Sir and Liggett and Platt have claims of $25.5 million and $12 million in trade payables, respectively. Mattress Firm also released a presentation Friday morning in conjunction with its Chapter 11 filing, with the plan calling for corporate EBITDA to increase to $134 million in fiscal year 2019 from negative $131 million in 2018, as the company benefits from its optimization plan.
1: Monotronics did not receive requisite term lender consents for its proposed second lien notes exchange, according to sources. A second lien capacity was needed to effectuate an exchange of unsecured notes into new second lien notes as contemplated in the company's transaction support agreement. On Thursday, Monotronics announced that it had received and rejected a counterproposal from a group of term lenders, which according to sources was sent by a term lender group represented by Jones Day and Evercore. Council of the group informed the company last week that its group would not support the TSA in its current form. Under the TSA, the company has the ability to continue negotiations with its lenders or toggle to an unsecured notes offer on the, quote, toggle trigger time, which is set for 11.59 p.m. Eastern time on the 15th business day following the September 24th TSA effective date. The TSA is supported by at least 66% of Monotronic's nine and one-eighth unsecured note holders, who negotiated the terms of the proposed transactions after collectively agreeing not to support the company's now terminated exchange offers launched in August. The August offers were terminated last week in conjunction with the new TSA announcement. Parent company Ascent Capital faces a continuing complaint by convertible note holders seeking to enjoin quote, any transfer by the company of substantially all of its assets to its hopelessly insolvent subsidiary Monotronics. The exchange relies on $100 million transferred from Ascent to Monotronics. In light of the revised transaction, the convertible noteholder plaintiffs were allowed to submit an amended complaint and preliminary injunction motion, which they filed on Monday.
0: On the island of Puerto Rico, prior to Judge Laura Taylor Swain taking the bench for a Friday morning hearing, a stipulation was filed stating that the Government Development Bank AFAF, the PROMESA Oversight Board, and the UCC have arrived, quote, at a mutually agreeable resolution of the UCC's concerns related to the GDB restructuring. At the hearing, Matthew Kramer of O'Melveny & Myers, on behalf of GDB and AFAF, walked the court through an overview of the proposed stipulation. The deal's three major components include, one, providing more resources to certain Title III debtors like PREPA and ERS, two transferring certain legal claims of the gdb to the commonwealth and three transferring certain proceeds of causes of action that the gdb owns in its own name to the public entity trust multiple parties expressed their support during the hearing including counsel for the oversight board and the ucc judge swain after clarifying with kramer that these modifications wouldn't materially alter the timeline or require resolicitation stated that she would consider approval of the stipulation.
1: Other top red stories of the week were 1. Tesla. SEC Elon Musk settled lawsuit over funding secured tweet.
0: 2. Altice USA announces intention to combine Suddenlink and Optimum business under a single credit silo.
1: number 3. Lynette Lenders organized with counsel Aiken Gump.
0: And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead.
2: Well, thank you, Karen. And folks, it is legitimately and unironically a light one this week, at least of this moment. Monday, October 8th, Westmoreland Coal, the forbearance that was set to expire this past Friday, was extended until today, as was the deadline to enter into an RSA. So I bet them boys are going to be busy this weekend. Tuesday, October 9th, the first day hearing for Mattress Firm, which filed this past week, and a reorg webinar for American Tire, which also filed this past week. Our webinar, featuring reorg rec- experts across our legal, analytical, and repertorial arms, will provide you with everything you need to know about the case. As will our Mattress Firm webinar, which is scheduled for Wednesday, October 10th. You can sign up for both of these webinars via our website and make sure you do so and tune in. Thursday, October 11th, seems relatively quiet at this point. And Friday, October 12th, the week ends with forbearance expiration for Dixie Electric, the contractor based out in beautiful Midland, Texas. And that's all we have right now. Karen, back to you.
0: Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more.
1: This week, Mark Fisher sits down with Jim Holloway to discuss the latest from the Permian Basin.
3: Thanks, Stephen. So I am back with uh, Jim Holloway, who is now wearing his energy hat. Uh, Thank you, uh, Jim, for pulling double duty uh, today. We are gonna talk about uh, the Permian Basin um, in the US. I had just seen that the US is actually now the largest uh, worldwide producer of oil, and a lot of that growth has has come from the Permian. So that's why we're gonna discuss it today, give a little recap of uh, what's going on and what should we expect going forward. So Jim, uh, you had recently written about this, uh, the title of a story that you put out, it's called Permian CapEx Increases Meet With Investor Concerns As Most Productive U.S. Basin Requires $350 Billion To Develop. So uh, first, let's talk on the interplay between CapEx and production. Do historical relationships or recent trends still hold?
2: Uh, Mark, that's a $64 question in the oil patch, or rather the $350 billion one. Uh, that $350 billion number, by the way, comes from our friends at Drilling Info, who have estimated that drilling out all the land buys since the start of 2016 across U.S. shale basins will require that amount, with $240 billion for the Permian alone. Um, You know, you mentioned the U.S.'s status as the world's largest oil producer, and the Permian has certainly been the poster child for the resurgence of U.S. oil production. Um, But despite that, the Permian emp has been under a lot of pressure this year. Uh, One of the major factors is, of course, the well-known takeaway issues, which has resulted in a differential for barrels sold in Midland of as much as $18 to WTI. But I think a larger thing is the whole interplay between CapEx and production that you mentioned. What we saw in the second quarter, and it'll be interesting to hear discussions on this on third quarter calls, is the whole spending question. Most Permian producers did boost their production forecast by greater, lesser amounts, but pretty much all of them revised CapEx higher by a much greater factor than production. So I think what's happening, the market is trying to figure out what the actual relationship is between productivity and spending, and ultimately how much recoverable asset there is in the Permian. And I'm not sure that anyone now really ultimately knows. There's so much variability between operators and within the different geologies. No one disputes the fact there's a notion of hydrocarbons in West Texas, and nobody disputes that there has been significant increase in well performance since 2015 or so, thanks to things like longer laterals and enhanced completion techniques. But the market remains very nervous. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. There's been a massive rally in crude since the lows in early 16. There, there has been a lot of talk recently about $100 oil on global economic growth, um, geopolitical-type things in Venezuela and Iran and wherever. But there's also a great deal of worry that the rally could unwind just as quickly. The Saudis may open the spigots, some people will say, or the Russians will open the spigots. So what I think the market really wants is more comfort that the rally is sustainable and maybe the 55 or 60 will be the new floor for um, oil prices. Um, and there are also just other factors. There's been some disappointment from in some of the returns um, on the equity of some post reorg energy names. And last is what you might call the revenge of the market cap weighted indexes. I think oil and gas is like six or seven percent of the S and P 500. Um, there was a time, you know, within within my lifetime, even, when it was about twenty percent, and Exxon was the biggest company by market cap. Now it's Apple, I think, and it's all the fang stocks. So there's not there's not really that canned demand for energy names that there used to be. thanks. so so sticking
3: with the operations of the companies and going back to the issue of, Production versus capital spending, and I guess historically, there's a couple of things that affect that, uh, namely productivity of wells and uh, the cost to develop the wells uh, themselves. So, you know, what is what are the companies that have been citing? for the largest issues that affect that relationship between capex and production.
2: Right. Uh, wh- well, what's interesting is that the Permian is underdeveloped relative to more mature plays like the Bakken and the Eagleford. So by definition, it's going to cost more to get that from developed from, you know, the its present state to more industrial mode. Um, under, understanding optimal completion design is an ongoing thing uh, you know the permian is stacked plays across nearly 50 million acres and a well completion design that works in reeves county may not be the best one for reagan county wood Mackenzie put out an interesting note this morning suggesting that emp's well production systems across the shale plays may not be as efficient and productive as they think the Woodmac guys looked at companies in the Midland portion of the Permian and noted a lot of variation in the number of days between the end of drilling and the end of completion. From as few days as 60 to 70 to as high as over 150. That illustrates something about the learning curve that's still going on. And what this variability means is that break-evens vary. In aggregate, break-even calls for shale have come down from an average of about 76 before the crash to around 50. But in the Permian, you still have some wells that are break even at 30, and some that need um, over 70 to break even. Uh, Rystad Energy recently said that around 30% of Permian and Bakken wells have WTI break evens above $70. And you can compare that to the more developed Anadarko DJ Basin, which is more developed, like I said. And according to Rystad, about 50% of recent completions there had WTI break below $40 compared to 34% below $40 for the Permian. I mean, the Permian will certainly get there, but we haven't reached that predictability that the market is so much. And we haven't really gotten to a good match between CapEx and production. Um, the Woodmac guy said something very interesting. This is elaborating on a point uh, made earlier, um, and I quote, geology and operational factors can affect wells, and there will always be some variation. But unless the operator understands why it's happening and addresses the problem, the result will be higher costs and inefficient use of capital. Um, I think a lot of the operators are still seeking that understanding across their acreage. And again, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. That's why you hear a lot of discussion on calls around results from specific pads and wells. I think the market wants assurance that operators are getting the right recipe, which would allow for more efficiency and more predictability around capex. And capex uh, growing at a rate above production increases might cause concern that they ain't there yet or that they've learned everything they could and any more gains in productivity will be limited. And EMPs, as we all know, are still very much in a returns mode and a capital discipline mode. There's a lot of interest in continuing to lower costs. You can see that in the explosion of locally sourced sand rather than Wisconsin white, for for example, in the Permian. But that raises a whole new set of issues. Does local sand perform as well at high pressures as Wisconsin white and so on? So that's really
3: interesting, uh, particularly the the part about the break-even prices. You know, I always knew that... Permian there are some very efficient wells in the Permian, but I didn't realize that the range between um, efficiency of wells was was so large. Um, so you know so that brings up uh, an important point that realizations uh, how much what price are the producers actually getting uh, for their oil is, is such a big, uh, concern and, and it's such a big part of the equation here so um, you know a lot of that um, the realizations being so low here is due to pipeline capacity which is an issue that you've talked about uh, a number of times what what's the current view on when or if capacity will no longer be a constraint in the permian
2: Okay, the, expect- the expectations are still for crude oil takeaway constraints to lift around the fourth quarter of next year. That's when you'll get uh, the BridgeTex, the Epic, the Gray Oak, and uh, some other pipelines in place. Uh, the Permian Express and uh, the- a Permian Gulf Coast line that's a joint venture between Exxon and Plains All-American comes on in the third quarter of 2020, along with uh, ETB and Magellan Midstreams. Um, That said, though, it's kind of interesting is that um, Woodmack, again, has also recently noticed there's very aggressive Midland cushion hedges by producers for 2020, which suggests that some are concerned about a risk of delays. Of course, if the pipelines come on at the promised time, that could result in Midland trading at a premium to Cushing. Um, as for natural gas, it's about the same. The constraints should lift late next year or or early 2020. There's a couple of pipelines in the works um, right now. Permian gas is at about a discount to Henry Hub. It's a sixty cent discount in the Rockies where Ultra is. By way of comparison. Um, but once that that capacity is online, Permian gas is going to have the an advantage of proximity to the Gulf Coast LNG terminals. Um, the U.S. of course became a net Exporter of uh, gas, natural gas, just within the past year, as well as the Mexican markets. Mexico would be immensely helped on its own part by more interstate pipelines to move it from the border. Um, this gas, plus what's in the Hainesville and the Eagleford, is going to continue pressuring gas only players in the Midcon and the Rockies, but that is a different story.
3: So, in the meantime, uh, you know, what I think you've talked about before is that companies that actually have a choice between basins have shifted production and operations to the Eagle Ford uh, so is is price the main issue here for for that switch? What have the operators said?
2: Yeah, what they've said uniformly is that it has to do with the realizations. Eagle Ford is priced at Louisiana Light Suite, which is at a premium of about seven or eight bucks to WTI. So if you have that option, you'll do it. And, and it's not just for people who have options in places other than the Ford. Uh, Noble decided to dial back its Permian activity. They have a big project in the Levine, Thin Field offshore Israel. And since we talked about natural gas, it's worth noting that at the Hard Energy Conference on the Eagleford a few weeks ago in San Antonio, a number of operators in the Eagleford were praising the gas opportunity there, the proximity to LNG markets and the very developed infrastructure.
3: Um, So on the Eagleford, though… One issue that operators run into is on spacing and lower productivity caused by that uh, parent-child uh, relationship. I'm curious, what have Permian operators said about uh, optimal spacing and how it relates to the uh, relationship between wells?
2: Yeah, well, that is definitely the $500 billion question in the oil field. The parent-child phenomena, which is also known as a frac hit, where in the proximity of a newly completed well to completed and producing one, can cause pressure in the producing well to fall or something worse like a collapse of the well bore is something that everybody is wrestling with, with greater or lesser degrees of success. It's As we've uh, reported on Reorg, it's caused real issues for Sanchez. Um, A lot of the issues and a lot of the things that caused the frack hits with them were that the child wells were drilled too close, around 400 feet to the parent, which caused a fairly dramatic loss of production in their Comanche asset. Sanchez did go back to the standard 600-foot spacing. That seems to have helped. Um, and right now, um, in the Permian, um, you're getting some kind of mixed reports. What was very interesting is that EOG, which is one of the best operators in North America, has said on their, they said on their second quarter call that they got great results from some wells spaced at 440 feet targeting the upper Wolf Camp formation in the Permian. Um, EOG emphasized that 440 feet is good spacing for that particular geology, but they were not in any way suggesting that was applicable across their entire acreage. And so what that could eventually mean, as Goldman put it in a report, is that spacing tighter than 660 feet is deployed. If that is deployed across the Permian, there could be more inventory but at less favorable economics. Again, with the market mostly expecting that exp- tighter spacing will tend to degrade well performance more quickly.
3: Great. Thanks, Jim. Uh, this, is, this has been really helpful. You've certainly given us a lot of issues to be on the lookout for as operators report earnings over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, Thank you. And Stephen, back to you.
1: Thank you, Mark. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Stephen Hopper, and this has been The Week in Reorg.